Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm so glad to see you all here tonight. As we say here at Hope, we have been praying for you, and so we believe it's absolutely no accident that you're here with us this evening, and so it's great to see you. My name is Amanda Neppel. I'm the discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines, and I was kind of thinking after maybe showing a video like that, and then maybe after the awesome worship that we had tonight, it was quite possible that I actually don't need to say a thing. And so I was going to talk to John about that, but I had a feeling I knew what he would say, and so I just skipped the whole conversation, and so here we are. But anyway, um, I hope that you enjoyed that video. I hope that it gave you a sense about what the season of Lent is all about. Um, Lent is a season of 40 days. It marks 40 days prior to Easter, and if you're doing math, um, it excludes Sundays, um, but it's the 40 days prior to Easter, excluding Sundays, and it, it began on Wednesday. Wednesday here at Hope Des Moines and at uh, churches uh, throughout the metro, we celebrated Ash Wednesday. And if you are new to Lent or if you didn't uh, grow up in a church that celebrated the season of Lent, all of this may seem a little bit strange. And even if you did grow up with it, I think there are a lot of ideas out there about what Lent is. Uh, what it is or what it isn't. Uh, my kids were at school on Wednesday, and I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I think that this particular kid uh, maybe knows that uh, that uh, my you know that my kid's mom works at a church, right? And so my my daughter was at school, and she was eating a pop tart, and some kid said to her, "Hey, I thought Catholics weren't supposed to have snacks today." <laughs> and she was just like what are you even talking about? Like, there's no cleaning that up. That's so wrong on so many levels that it's just like, okay, whatever. So the season of Lent is not about Pop-Tarts, you know. I mean, unless someone decides they're going to give up Pop-Tarts for Lent or whatever, I guess, you know, that's up to them. What the season of Lent is really about is about remembering Christ's sacrifice. And it's about preparing our hearts and understanding how much we desperately need a Savior so if you hear someone talking about giving up this or that or whatever for Lent, the whole idea is that we give something up so that we make space in our heart for Jesus. So if you decide, just an example, you're going to give up Diet Coke, then whenever you find yourself in this place where you're like, man, I really wish I could have a Diet Coke, the idea is, yeah, but you know what? The truth of the matter is, because Jesus died on the cross for me, I, Diet Coke really is kind of insignificant, right? And so that's what giving something up for the season of Lent is all about. And if you were here on Wednesday for Ash Wednesday service, we talked about, you know what, there is good news and there is bad news. We'll get the bad news out of the way first. The bad news is that we are dust, right? None of us is getting out of this alive. The same end is going to come. For all of us, but the very good news, and it is very, very, very good news, is that no matter what else is going on, no matter what life has been like when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he is so much bigger than any of it. He cleans all of that up. He renews us. He restores us. And so while we are in desperate need of a Savior, the good news is we have a Savior who is more than able to do what he said he would do. 
And so when we think about the season of Lent and we think about this time leading up to uh, Easter when we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, really when we think about it like that, it certainly makes sense that we would begin this season of Lent talking about the events surrounding Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, because we know that Lazarus dies in this story, spoiler alert, he does, Um, but then there's a resurrection. There is rejoicing. There is a turnaround to this story. And so in order to really understand what we heard today, we heard John chapter 11, verses 30 to 35. You guys know me. I like to back up and make sure we know exactly what's going on in the passage that we heard. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 11. Um, We're going to start here at the beginning of chapter 11 with verses 1 and 2. John, the gospel author, really wants to make sure that we know exactly who it is that he's talking about. So he introduces us to Mary and Martha, and he wants us to know that this Mary, because Mary was a common name, he wants us to know that the Mary in this story is the same Mary that later poured the very expensive, very precious oil on Jesus' feet and anointed him um, before he died on the cross. So John, the author, wants us to know exactly who these people are. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are good friends of Jesus. And so when Lazarus, the younger brother, becomes sick, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, your dear friend Lazarus is very sick. And so we can assume from the way John wrote this that there was no ambiguity. I don't know how many Lazaruses there were, but Jesus knew exactly who this was that the messengers had told him about. He knew exactly that this was his dear friend, Lazarus. And so if we are maybe a little bit new to faith or we're just kind of getting started reading the Bible or maybe we've never heard this story before and all we really know about Jesus is that he was like really awesome and he was a son of God and he healed people and then we hear that his dear friend is sick, we assume, we make the assumption that he's going to like jump up and get going and head right over to where Lazarus is because what Jesus does is he heals people. It's what he does. It's like a politician shaking hands. Like you don't have to guess that's what they're going to do. That's just what they do. Jesus heals people. Now, with all of this going on, the disciples who are with Jesus find themselves in a very uncomfortable situation. And this situation was very uncomfortable for two reasons that I can imagine. The first reason that this is uncomfortable is because they know Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They are good friends. They've probably hung out at their house. Um, They've had meals together. They're good friends. And so the disciples care that Lazarus is sick. But the disciples have another problem because in chapter 10, just a few verses before, Jesus and his disciples had been at Jerusalem, which was very near to the city of Bethany, just a a less than, you know, less of a short walk, really, between the two places. And they had been in Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem had been getting ready to arrest or stone Jesus, or preferably both. And if you're a disciple, you're worried about the guy who's trying to stone Jesus who has really bad aim. And just by proximity, this is a threat to your, like, desire for self-preservation, right? So the disciples have this problem. They want Lazarus to be healed. They care about Lazarus, but then they also really prefer for not to be stoned. It's a, you know, I mean, it's a quandary, right? 
So Jesus tells them, okay, hang on, guys. We're just going to chill out for a little bit. And the disciples have to be thinking, it is about time. This guy has finally come to his senses. I don't know. Maybe it was getting run out of town made him realize how serious this situation really is. But whatever it is, thank heavens, right? Again, they're worried about stray rocks. So then in verse 7, Jesus is like, okay, it's, it's time it's time to go. It's time to head back down to see Lazarus. And the disciples are like, whoa, 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 Jesus, stop, stop. Listen, I know that it was all kind of a mad dash. You may not remember exactly what happened, but let me remind you, they want to kill you. They literally want to kill you. <clears throat> I live in a home with teenagers, and I think the word literally might be the most overused word in my home, literally. And I feel sometimes like if you're my age or a little bit older, maybe you remember the movie The Princess Bride, and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> but in my home, literally means like literally everything, literally every time. Oh, my gosh, literally. And what's funny about this is that the disciples are in a position where they could say, okay, Jesus, oh my gosh, I could literally die right now. And it would be totally true, <laughs> right? <laughs> literally. So I imagine that and the disciples in their best, Jesus, literally, we are going to die. And it, 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 it's serious. It's for real. So the disciples, similar uh, to uh, teenage fashion, they have their tunics like all in an uproar. But the thing is this. And this is really important. Jesus knows, because if you know this story, you know that after Lazarus is raised from the dead, that this really gets the religious leaders totally worked up. And so Jesus knows that when they return to Bethany, and when Jesus does what Jesus knows he's going to do, at that point, a series of events it's going to be like dominoes knocking each other down the line. Because when Jesus goes back to Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead, it's going to start this chain reaction that is not going to stop until Jesus is on the cross and then in a tomb and then resurrected. So this is what Jesus knows the disciples don't know yet. They decide to head back to Bethany, and the disciples are not, not super thrilled about any of it. When they get there, they learn that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And in that culture, it was thought that around day three, but certainly by day four, that around that time was when the person's spirit fin finally left the body. The spirit hung around for three, maybe four days. It depended, and what they believed, what they interpreted was that once a person's physical appearance after death, once their face really started to change, that that change was the spirit leaving the body. Now, we know that that's the loss of moisture. That's the breakdown of collagen. It's the things that naturally happen um, when a person dies. But their explanation of all this was that um, this was when the person's spirit had left their body. And that's one of the things, the fact that it had been four days and it was accepted and understood that 
Lazarus' spirit had left his body, that when Jesus raised Lazarus, it was a full-out resurrection. That's one of the things that changed this resurrection from that of Jairus' daughter, if you're familiar with that story from Mark chapter 5. In that situation, Jesus raised this little girl from the dead, but it had been maybe an hour on the outside. So we know, because Mark tells us in his gospel, that she had been dead and Jesus had raised her. But for the religious leaders' perspectives, it had been an hour. They could kind of explain that away. Maybe she hadn't actually been dead. You know, I mean, who really knows? But in Lazarus' case, it was clear. It had been four days. His spirit had left town. It was over. And so when Jesus shows up, the crowd tells Mary and Martha that Jesus is there. Now, again, this is the same Mary that we're going to read about that anoints his feet with oil. It's the same Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. It's the same Mary who spent way more time than was actually appropriate for a woman to spend with a man. She spent that time with Jesus learning and following him and and hearing the things that he had to say. And Mary knew, she knew, that by all intents and purposes, Jesus coulda, shoulda been there two days earlier. She knew that. So when they hear that Jesus is in town, that he's come to see them, it's Martha that runs out to go meet Jesus, but Mary this time is the one who stays put and doesn't go to see what it is that Jesus has to say projecting my own humanness onto Mary a little bit, which may or may not be fair at all, I can only imagine that there's a part of Mary that was pretty ticked off, for lack of a better word, right? She and her sister and her brother were people that Jesus loved. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew they were friends. And Mary knew that Jesus had been healing people the whole time he'd been doing his ministry When she sent a messenger to go tell Jesus that Lazarus was sick, she had to be thinking, it's all right, we're good, we're friends. We know the healer, we know the teacher, he loves us, he stays at our house, there's no way he's going to let this happen, we are covered. I have an in, right? And so Jesus gets there, and she had to be confused, and she had to be angry and brokenhearted over really what had to have felt like a betrayal. She had to have felt a little bit like Jesus had betrayed her. And so she falls at his feet. And I suspect that it has something to do with the fact that maybe the pain of this whole thing just seemed like more than she could even bear. She couldn't hold herself up because of the anger and the grief and the betrayal, the whys, the, the what's going on. And she says to Jesus, Jesus, if only, if only you would have been here. Jesus, you knew, where were you? If only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So what I want to ask you today, and what I want to spend a couple of minutes thinking about, what's your if only? Because maybe it's not the same as Mary's. It almost certainly isn't. Maybe it's not the same as the person sitting next to you. Maybe it's not the same today as it was five years ago, and it's probably not the same as what it might be a year from now. But at some point or another, every single one of us has had an if only. 
If only she would say this. If only he wouldn't do that. If only I could have this relationship. If only this relationship would end. If only I could get that job. If, if only, if only, if only. We can do it all day long. A lot of times our if onlys are things that we seem, that we think, that feel like they should be very good things. Like we shouldn't feel bad about saying if only I could have this, because maybe it feels like other people have exactly what it is that we are wanting. We have in this church a lot of, we have such a diverse community. It is so awesome. And here in our community, we have a lot of single people. We have a lot of married people, and we also have a lot of single people. And there are plenty of single people who are totally content in their singleness, just like there are plenty of married people who are not super content in their marriedness. But there are a lot of single people who are content in their singleness, and that is so wonderful and so awesome. And there are lots of single people who are not one bit, not one bit content with being single. And we have this sense that wanting a relationship, wanting a romantic partner, eventually someday wanting to be married and to have a family, that is a perfectly natural, normal thing to want. So God, if only I could have that, I really feel then if I had this romantic relationship, if I had someone that I was married to, if I had kids, that if only that could happen, God, that would really, man, I would really know that you're there with me then. God, if only you would do that. And God, you know what, if only... If only you could help me feel like it doesn't have anything to do with me, God, honestly. Maybe I'm never going to find that person, but God, if you could help me feel like it's not about, it's not something that's wrong with me, that would be cool, God. Maybe you are a young family, and maybe your if only is, has to do with the fact that you really wish more than anything else that you could have a child and you've been waiting, and you've been trying, and you've been praying, and you're saying, God, if only, if only, God, I see so many kids, and I see so many parents, and God, I don't think it's selfish or wrong for me to ask why I can't have that for me. God, if only I could have that. And the devil does this really nasty little trick. And the devil makes us think that when we are longing for those things, for good things that we don't have, that we are the only one. And if you're feeling that way today, I want to tell you right now that you are not the only one who has that longing, who has that if only. And I want you to know that if you're feeling that way today, that we are... Uh, in the stages, early stages of getting together a support group, particularly for women who are dealing with the issues surrounding infertility, because you are not alone. And women experience those, experience those things in a certain way, and so if you want to help get connected with that early community, please email me. Um, you can find my uh, email address on the website, and I will help get you connected um, to, to that group so that you can have people to connect with and support you, and you'll know that th this is your if only, but it's, you're not the only one. Like I said, we have a lot of families and young kids in this church, and if you're a single person or if you're a couple struggling with infertility, you're like, yeah, tell me about it, <laughs> right? Um, there's one more if only. Since I'm just going all over the place and talking about all the things that a lot of times we don't talk about, there's a lot of young families in this church. And another thing that I think that becomes an if only when that's the place that you are is your if only becomes 
got a baby, I've got small kids, if only I could feel like a normal person again. I don't remember the last time that I remembered who I was. If I could even have just a glimpse, I don't even know, but just a little bit of feeling like who, who I was or a little bit of normal. Um, I've told you guys, I, you know, I have four children, and uh, there was days after one of them was born that were dark days that turned into dark weeks, that turned into dark months. And I remember one night, I got out of bed, and I went into the bathroom, and I was splashing water on my face. And I was really, God and I were having it out. It was the most energy I'd had in weeks, actually, to be able to come up with this energy, to be able to fight with God, and we were having it out. And at one point, I was on the bathroom floor, and I was crying out, God, where are you And up until that point, that might have been the most honest prayer I'd ever prayed in my entire life. God, where are you? And I remember that. And when I read these words of Mary's, when she says, Jesus, if only, Jesus, if only, where were you? She couldn't think of a time when Jesus had ever not healed someone, and yet her brother had been dead for four days. So how do we answer that? There's only, there's only one way to answer that, and so for us, I think we're going to answer it by keep reading. If you have your Bible, John chapter 11, verses 33 to 35. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. So this is the part of the story where if John, the author of this book, if John had wanted to talk about a superhero, he would have had Jesus swoop in and Jesus would have done this great big thing and he would have had this huge dramatic statement, oh, guys, don't worry. Lazarus is only asleep. Guys, what are you wasting your tears for? It's all good, right? John could have done that. I mean, and we wouldn't have been that surprised about Jesus swooping in to save the day, right? But John has a different idea because he wants us to know that the Savior that he's telling us about is actually way better than any superhero because this Savior gets it. This Savior knows pain. The Savior isn't quick with a one-liner. He doesn't say cute little phrases like, stay positive, it'll get better tomorrow. Because the truth is, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But that isn't even the point. Because regardless of yesterday or today or tomorrow, Jesus is with us in our joy and in our suffering. And Jesus celebrates with us when we celebrate. And Jesus weeps with us when we weep. And for you and I, when we're going through our life and it feels like we can't catch a break and we so much want to ask why, and we want to say, God, why haven't you dealt with my if only? God, are you going to show up or what? 
I want to tell you a story about three young men. These three young men had lost every single thing they had. Uh, they had lost their family, their home. Everything about their life was different um, than what it had been before. Everything had been taken away from them, and they had been forced to go live in a foreign country. And everything was new, and everything was different, and everything was really hard. And if they had anything going for them at all, it was that they were smart, they were strong, they were charismatic. And because of these characteristics, they caught the attention of the leaders of that local government. And so they began to get involved in the ranks of that government. And as time went on, things were going okay, except for that it was clear there was going to be one big, big problem. And that one big problem was that they were followers of God. They were strongly devoted uh, Jewish people that followed God. And it became clear that if they were unwilling to denounce their faith in God, they were going to be killed. These three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, from Daniel chapter 3. So the king, Nebuchadnezzar, you can say it, it's fun, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he had decided that he was going to build a gold statue. And it was this big idea that at certain times of the day, everyone was going to bow down to this statue. And he thought that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not used to hearing the word no ever under any circumstance. And so he saw no reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not kneel down to his statue. And he says that anyone who doesn't do this is going to be thrown into the furnace. So this is serious business. And Nebuchadnezzar was not known for his mercy or his grace, not by any stretch of the imagination. And so there was no doubt that this whole furnace business was going to come to pass. So he gives uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego one more chance. And he says, listen, are you going to renounce your God or what? Because once I throw you into that furnace, who do you really think is going to save you? And their response is perfect. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. Let's read these next words together. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never worship your statue. I love that so much. Our God can rescue us. Our God can save us. But do you know what? Even if he doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Even if we end up in that furnace and that's it, it changes nothing. So many times our relationships, our relationship with God is so dependent on our circumstances. So when things are going good, our relationship with God is going good, right? And when we hit a little bit of a speed bump, we do what Mary and Martha did and we send Jesus a, a message, right? We let him know, kind of struggling here a little bit. And that's appropriate too. But what about when there is an if only that needs to be resolved? And if only, I'm waiting, where are you? If only God, come on. So here's where this Lazarus story gets very real and it gets really, really good. 
Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. And the Bible says that that day when, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, many people saw this and many people believed in Jesus that day. I bet they did. Right? That's really not that surprising. And so while this story is very much about Lazarus and his sisters, it automatically forces us to think about what's coming just a few chapters later, right, with Jesus' own death and resurrection. There's going to be more weeping. There's going to be a sense that all of this was for nothing, that nothing is ever going to be right again. That's going to happen. But then what's going to happen after that is this sense of rejoicing and wonder and awe all because we have a Savior who gets it. Because we have a Savior who knows and has experienced pain right along with us and certainly in death on a cross. Jesus could have gone off by himself, probably, and done everything that needed to be done for us to have restoration, for us to experience grace, for us to experience everything that only Jesus can give us. Presumably, Jesus could have done that by himself, and then he could have strolled in like Superman and said, guys, I got it. You're covered. Don't worry about it. It's all taken care of, but that's not what Jesus did. And one very big reason why Jesus did that is because Jesus experienced death the way that you and I are going to experience death. And Jesus says, guess what? I got it. This is going to happen, but I have this covered because I did it. You remember, you saw, right? You saw, you heard the stories, you know exactly what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, horribly and shamefully, it was a death. It was a death the same as a death that you and I are going to experience. And Jesus cried out. He knew what it was like. He said, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? God, where did you go? And so when we feel that in our heart, we don't feel it alone. Jesus is right there with us. Jesus says all of these if onlys, all of these things that are holding you back, that you're holding on to, that you think there's something wrong with you, Jesus says, give it to me because I've already done this and I want to hold on to it. I want to take it. These are the reasons I went to the cross. And it wasn't cheap. It wasn't inexpensive. It was costly. So Jesus says, give it to me because what else are you going to do with it? I'm the only one who can take it. Give it to me. It's why I went to the cross. So I have a, a friend of a friend, my dear friend from college, um, they have a close family, that, a, friend, a family that they are close friends with. They've gone on vacations together, um, spent a lot of time together. Their kids are pretty close to the same age. And um, two weeks ago, the dad and that family, he died. He was 41 years old. And he left a wife and three kids. And he died of cancer. And I talked to my friend, and she said that when he died, he had no doubts. Now, I don't know how you look at that situation at 41 years old 
and know what you're leaving behind as a as a husband as a as a father how you look at that and you say god you can save this god you can heal this i know you can but even if you don't it doesn't change anything and i think the only way you can say that by knowing that Jesus has taken all of those if onlys and he took them to the cross and they are done and they are dealt with. It doesn't mean the pain goes away, but it means that the answer is set. It means the answer is set because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's just going to be Jed. I'm not sure. And we're going to sing an old hymn. And the hymn we're going to sing is uh, Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. This is a praise song, out and out a praise song. And it is a song of praise regardless of circumstance. It doesn't mean that the circumstances are small. It doesn't mean that they don't matter. It just means that regardless, Jesus has taken them. Jesus asks you to give them to him. And because of that, we can praise Jesus regardless. Because no matter our if-onlys, even if he doesn't, it's covered. It's covered. Please stand. And join as we sing this hymn, Blessed Assurance.